Well, hello, and welcome to the Fellowship Podcast of CMF International. My name is Erin McDade, and I'm your hostess today. I'm actually filling in for my teammate, Jake Moore. Like Jake, I work in CMF's home office outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, but I work in advancement, and that just means I get the awesome privilege of helping our partners connect with God's mission through CMF missionaries and ministries around this world. I'm excited to be here with you today, and especially because we have a very special guest on our podcast today. Not only is she a dear friend, but she is also a CMF alumna herself. Please welcome to our podcast, Tracy Topol. Hey, Tracy. Hi, Erin. Thank you for having me today. It's so good to see you. Oh, it is good to be together apart with you as well. Um, obviously, we are so excited to have you here on the Fellowship Podcast with us today. Um, for those of you who are listening and you are a part of our CMF missionaries who serve around the world, you might be interested in learning this about Tracy. Um, she was supposed to be with us for our one summit gathering in Malaga, Spain this summer. <laughs> Unfortunately, when COVID hit, obviously our plans changed drastically for that. And we had to hit pause on it and postpone that all missionary gathering until next summer. But Tracy, what we wanted to bring you in for that conversation, the conversations, they were just too valuable to wait until 2021. So thanks for your willingness to be here on the podcast with us today and talk about a little bit more about what you do and mm -hmm. how it relates to so many of our worldwide staff. Well, thank you, Erin. Thank you. It is, it's so nice to be here. And I am disappointed that we didn't gather in Spain, but hopefully that will work out for next year. Um, but I am excited to be able to speak to you all about some of the work I do. A little bit about me. I go back, way back from CMF. I think I started in 1997. I was a REACH intern. Yeah. <laughs> Kenya. So that was my first experience um, with uh, CMF, with missions. Um, it was uh, you know, so impactful and life-changing to be in Africa, to be in Kenya. I was with Dennis and Mary Reed um, in the work that they're doing there outside of Nairobi um, back then. <laughs> many years ago. Uh, and that began my journey uh, with CMF. I was also um, from Georgia Tech and that's where Aaron and I met. We were the same major roommates um, involved uh, together at, in campus ministry at uh, in Georgia Tech. Um, interned there, then began my journey with Global Scope and was fortunate to be a part of the first Global Scope team to Mexico City. Um, spent two and a half years there. My um, now husband was also part of the team. So after uh, two and a half years serving in campus ministry in Mexico City, we were married and our, we spent our first married year in Santiago, Chile and helping the Global Scope team there. So, and you had, so two teams. Two teams. Global Scope teams, rich history with CMF, Tell you've got a beautiful family too. So you already mentioned Craig, your husband. Tell us who else is in your family. So I have two daughters, Ruby, who is 11 years old, and Zia, who is eight. So we um, busy, busy. Yes, you are. Which is why we're glad you're here with us today. Now tell us a little bit about what you do professionally. What occupies your time? Um, you know, let's mm -hmm. set the stage a little bit for the conversation we want to have today. 
Yeah, so so when my husband and I left the field in Chile, and that was uh, in 2003, I guess, at the time, um, almost 2004, he went back to seminary at the time to get his master's in divinity. Um, he is now a chaplain um, with the healthcare system here in Athens, Georgia. I should mention that I'm in Athens, Georgia yeah. now. Know, that's rough. As a Georgia Tech grad, I still don't understand your choice. Time. We're getting through it. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, but at that time, I really um, had, you know, did some soul searching as far as what my next steps were professionally. Um, know that I really enjoyed um, the relationships that I was able to develop and form in campus ministry and wanted to continue in, in some type of helping profession and ended up in early childhood mental health. Um, and so I'm a licensed clinical social worker, spent some time doing direct practice in New Mexico. And while my husband was serving a church, a little bilingual congregation um, in New Mexico, and uh, spent some time in Santa Fe working with all um, immigrant families in home visiting and infant and early childhood mental health. And from that time, transferred back to Georgia to get my doctorate. And so I um, spent about five years at the University of Georgia. Um, working on my doctorate uh, and applying infant and early childhood mental health into early childhood education settings um, mm -hmm. and continue to do that work as a consultant now, a mental health consultant um, regionally here, local with local school systems, as well as statewide and some uh, national projects. So I've been working in that time, that field probably for about over 10 years now. Um, and I'm really happy to to merge these, my my life in ministry um, and the ideas of how early childhood impact the developing child, the developing brain, uh, stress and trauma and what that looks like, maybe ministry and how we can work together to, to help have healing relationships. Yes. And I should mention that this is episode one of two that we're going to get to be with you, Tracy. Um, this conversation, just laying some of that groundwork. So you mentioned, you know, the brain, brain development, and how that really influences how we interact with other people and the ways that we walk through life. Just to, to give us some foundation for this larger conversation, would you be willing to talk about brain development and what you've learned in working with um, infant and early childhood development that's important for us now? Yes, um, I mean that serves as the foundation, and we um, we have learned so much about the brain uh, in the past fifteen years or so, and knowing how young children develop and grow, um, and it is just uh, it, it's fascinating to me on a personal level having young children and seeing them develop and grow, but also um, just the science behind it. It just blows. Um, my mind, actually thinking about early childhood development. And when young children, um, you know, we are born with our, our, our brains are not fully developed. And within the first three to five years of our life, we really uh, develop about 85% of our brain structure. So we're setting up the hierarchy, the architecture of our brain. And our brain is highly, highly dependent on experiences throughout mm -hmm. lifetime, but really, really sensitized to experiences in early life prenatally uh, in utero as well as um, in those first uh, years of life set the foundation our early caregivers really help set the stage of our expectations of what it's like to be in relationship with each other so the idea that um, i learn what it means to be cared for to empathize uh, 
to care for each other in my interactions. In mental health, there's a, a famous quote by Donald Winnicott, who's a psychoanalyst uh, in the, I think he said this in the 40s, that there's no such thing as a baby. Hmm. There's a baby and someone. Hmm. And it's the and. It's in between. It's the relationship between the infant and the caregiver that starts to build our understandings of ourselves. Wow. And I believe of God as well. Right. Well, um, help us understand a little bit more too, just um, how those relationships when they're positive play out in our development, ongoing development. And then maybe if we come to a rocky beginning, how that might affect our development moving forward. Uh, first of all, I do want to say a little bit that the brain is malleable, and that means mm -hmm. that it is open to experiences throughout the lifetime. So that doesn't mean whatever has happened to us or whatever our experiences are early on are predictive and that they predict the rest of the life. It's not predetermined in that way. As we all know, we grow and develop and have experiences um, throughout our lifetime. However, Early on, the brain is particularly sensitive and open to building these, um, how our brain actually functions. So there's three parts of the brain, the lower brain, the midbrain, and the higher brain. Um, it's a very simplified version of the brain. And so if we think about each parts of the brain has a particular function. And the lower brain um, is known as kind of our reptilian brain. It controls all of our autonomic nervous systems, our um, uh, our breathing patterns, our heart rate, our temperature. And as we move up, the midbrain is our limbic system, which is uh, responsible for a lot of our emotional feeling center, our fear center, where we kind of take in information from the outer world and process that. Um, and then our higher brain is our cortex and that it's more higher order thinking and it's um, our ability to make decisions where our executive functioning is housed um, and be able to have logic and reason. The brain continues to develop as the child um, develops. And so, and it's hierarchical. So a baby is born already with an intact lower brain. So that means I can, my, my breathing and my heart rate, um, and, but it's also dependent on the caregiver to help regulate things like temperature, hunger, all of that becomes set up in my brain of how I'm regulated. Um, and then uh, in a few you know, more weeks, months of life, the, the midbrain comes online and that's the emotional mm -hmm. center where I am really tuned in on that person, right? I'm sure you remember that experience with your girls. Yeah. Um, I am really about that person and it becomes really important that the caregiver then is able to help what we call co-regulate okay. um, states for the child from crying and to, to bring a sense of calm and regulation mm -hmm. so that that lower brain, which is really about fight, flight, or freeze, reptilian brain, am I safe or not safe, can be calmed with the midbrain and regulated. Mm -hmm. So then I can open up pathways as my higher brain starts to come online around 18 months and really build that executive functioning. So all of this architecture is being set up and organized in a hierarchical way in relationship and experiences. So in our environment. Fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. 
So as you talk about it, the relationship that we share with the outside world, with our caregivers in those early years in particular, are helping us know how to respond to life. You talk about regulation being just, that's just a response to life, correct? Mm -hmm. That we interact. have a stress response system that our caregivers help regulate and set up. And so the way um, this might get built up in our early childhood experiences. And I do want to, I want to pause for a second and talk a little bit about um, genes here. What, what, what role does nature plus nurture play in all of this? Because we are, we all do come in with our genetic makeup. Um, we do have that as part of, of who we are in our DNA, but there's an exciting field probably around 10 years old now that's called epigenetics. Hmm. And epigenetics is the study of how the environment shapes our genetic expression so that we now understand that the environment and nature are so tightly woven and there's this interplay that's gene by environment interplay so that even though the environment doesn't alter my genetic makeup it certainly um, has a big part to say about how my genes are expressed and that's where these nurturing, um, responsive caregiving environments really bring out the potential and the best in us. Whereas um, environments that are challenging, that are chaotic, that are um, not, not responsive to a young child's social emotional needs as well as physical needs, set up um, vulnerabilities in our stress response system. Right. I'm hoping you can actually talk a little bit more about that because um when we do have some experiences uh, that, um, I guess, create that framework for how we interact with stress, what happens when that stress reaches a new level? You know, how does our brain come into play with that? How do we how do we respond, even in our childhood, to some of the abnormal stresses that come? Yes, you know, this this would probably be a good time to talk a little bit about um, what's known in the field as ACEs, and it's adverse childhood experiences. And there is a seminal study that was done back in the 90s that um, really looked at our physical health and health indicators from a large sample of population. I think it was done by Kaiser Permanente, funded it, um, and really interested in our physical health. And um, a researcher was able to, is actually a medical doctor, to correlate. Um, and they sent out, looking at people's health records, they sent out a questionnaire of about, I think it's 12 questions that um, ask about experiences early in life. And there are things um, about, did you experience um, from things of abuse, of physical, um, emotional, sexual abuse? Did you have a parent who suffered from mental illness? Uh, did you suffer food insecurity? And looking at correlating these experiences um, with higher rates of incidence of physical um, health. And so mm-hmm. heart disease, um, things that um, health taking behavior, health risk behaviors like smoking, um, things of that nature were highly correlated with the experiences that, chil- that children had under the age of 18. And so you see um, in what we've learned about the brain and the body and the stress response system, this, this time that stress in our bodies, in our lives over time can 
create a wear and tear so that our immune system is down, um, that we're more vulnerable and susceptible to diseases and, and sicknesses. Um, and so thinking, thinking about stress in that way, um, there is a continuum of stress. And so we, we have, all of us experience stress in our lives that's normative, that's developmentally appropriate. Actually, stress can be really good for us. Mm. Um, and it can help us um, w- when we have, you know, times that we need to be more alert um, and, we're, and we experience a bit of stress or the adrenaline that can help us um, perform better or, you know, give a presentation um, and be more alert and more aware. Uh, take an exam. Um, but don't we come down? Oh, we do. Yeah. <laughs> we do. Come, we need that recovery, right? We have yeah. to have the recovery type. And so our bodies... Uh, are designed to to operate in this kind of optimal level of functioning with the stress that's modulated and regulated all day long. When our bodies um, have an experience of stress over a long period of time, so we know that stress is developmentally appropriate and good and actually creates um, development and pushes development along, such as a baby learning to go from crawling to walking that is a really stressful experience. Um, yet there's a reorganization, a disorganization to then reorganize into something that's um, more resilient or more a capacity, developmental capacity, such as walking. And so stress for us in our lives and in our bodies um, is meant to serve a purpose over the short right. term. But when stress becomes um, chronic and that it's for a long period of time that is uncontrollable, unpredictable, then we start to experience stress that becomes emotionally costly. And for a young child, that can actually mean um, derailing development um, and into stress that would be considered traumatic, where um, the brain architecture is actually interrupted because a child in their developing brain is spending a lot of energy focused on uh, fight, flight, or freeze in my lower brain. So a lot of energy is there and unable to then be used for other parts of my brain development. So Tracy, this is so helpful just to understand um, the general formation of the brain, how our different experiences play into it. I mean, you've been sharing some of these insights, not just with your clients, your patients, um, but you've shared this with a number of campus ministers and different ministries. Why? Help us see the correlation because it, it seems such valuable information. But let's make that shift now as we turn to how this helps shape us as ministers even. Yes. So thinking um, for me and, and my work, the relationship has become central. So thinking for me about how um, I bring all these pieces together from the my professional work that I'm doing now and if it early childhood mental health and with ministry is focusing on uh, the and and that we as human beings are social creatures and we are meant to be with each other, to be together um, and to be with God and how we focus on relationships. We know um, with work in early childhood attachment and parent-child relationships, that relationships are essential for helping build stress, uh, healthy stress response systems, for healthy brain development. Um, and what better place to do that than the church, um, where we have a community that can care for each other, um, that can help each other through these stressful times. And for a child and for a family to be able to turn to the church 
um, to receive the help they need, I think it helps build strong families, helps build strong individuals and strong communities. Great. And this is, um, for those of you who are listening, we're actually going to dive even deeper into this particular topic in episode two, just how um, you talk about co-regulation, you know, different people that come alongside mm-hmm. us and help us in the church being primal to that. Um, help us, let's, let's shift it too, because some of that plays out for our missionaries who are listening. Yeah. Um, maybe uh their team, the individuals that, you know, that they're serving alongside, they're on their ground, they're national Christian partners. In many ways, those relationships help regulate stress. Maybe from your own experience serving as a CMF missionary, can you talk a little bit about um, how stress plays out in these cross-cultural settings? Yes, how vital yes. those relationships are? Definitely. I think um, it, it is crucial and absolutely essential. Um, and thinking um, there's there's so much that's that's going through my brain right now of how to bring these all together. Right. Connections. But because um, we spent a lot of time talking about adversity and risk. Um, but I want to shift the conversation a little bit to resilience, um, because we know even though we know that the, the risk factors um, create these vulnerabilities, they're not predictive. And the reason they're not predictive is because of protective factors. And what we have found over and over is connectedness. The actual health of our relationships is more predictive of our well-being than our past experiences. Hmm. Can you say that one more time, please? I'll try. I'll try. So our connectedness, and this comes from the work of Bruce Perry as well, who spends a lot of time working with kids that have come through really, um, in communities that have come through really trauma experiences. Um, But that in his work, he's also found that connectedness or relationship health is one of the greatest indicators or predictive predictor of uh, well-being and our physical as well as our social, emotional, mental well-being. Um, And I would venture to say our spiritual well-being as well, our connectedness to each other and our connectedness uh, to God and being able um, to have relationships that can help what we call co-regulation, group regulation. Certainly when we all worship together and we do our rituals are in, in ministry, um, whether that's in campus ministry or um, in churches, there is a calming effect in group regulation that happens um, together that helps build our individual capacity to regulate and face adversity. You know, one of the things that we believe in at CMF is team ministry. It's vital. Uh, you're not going to see some missionaries going out on their own, even on our fields where you have people who aren't necessarily in like a campus ministry setting where they're working together every day. And, um, you know, some of our teams in Africa or in Southeast Asia, they're more spread out, but they still function as a team. And they have local area partners. Um, talk to us. Maybe you've got an example or two from your own experiences on the field. How valuable stress mm-hmm. comes up in different settings, and those relationships help you regulate, help the ministry regulate in a sense. Yes, I mean we, um, you know, and how I think about this as well from early childhood is the importance of attachment. And attachment, when we talk about attachment for young children, we talk about uh, kids being securely attached or insecurely attached. 
Um, but really the definition of security, of being attached in a way that's secure is being able to leave my caregiver because I've been given the confidence and the competency in myself um, that I can go out and accomplish wonderful things, right? Mm -hmm. Knowing that whenever I get in trouble, I can turn back and guess who's going to be there? That person or group. That group, right? That caregiver. Um, and so I see our functioning of our ministries, ministry teams in a similar way hmm. um, that we gather from each other when we meet together. And, and when those meetings are predictable, when our time together is, is prioritized and we have that space um, where we can really get to know each other authentically, um, that we give each other the energy, the confidence, the competence, knowing that if it gets too much for me, where can I go? Who mm. can I turn to? Um, I can turn to my team. I can turn to my relationship with God. Um, and that's what we talk about in secure attachments and secure relationships. Um, you know, my time on the field was so long ago, um, but yet what stays with me is the relationships that I've built with my team members. Um, and those moments um, that were really hard, whether it was language learning, whether it was um, just trying to um, figure out each other's personalities and how we work together and how to best use our talents and gifts, uh, the moments that stick out are the times that we were able to get through that and support one another. Um, and I think probably all of our missionaries on the field can think of times that way, that um, team has become that important. Um, you know, I think the danger is when we get isolated. Um, and that certainly has been um, a challenge globally with the pandemic of right. in place and being isolated and not having those connect connections. Uh, and that's where we have to work really hard and, and keep that in, in the forefront and make that a priority to still stay connected um, by creating that time together. Right. Well, even what you're talking about, um, I remember in going through support raising training to go on the field ourselves and talking to a whole bunch of missionaries and hearing them say that the number one reason people leave the field has to do with a lack of support, primarily yeah. with team. And so even what you're saying, um, for those of our missionaries who are listening, your team situations might not be perfect by any means, but I hear you saying having that support network around you is essential to fruitful and effective long-term health. So thinking about our teams um, and thinking about how crucial and vital our relationships are to each other. Erin, um, you made me think of uh, the, and you said, even though our team is not perfect, mm -hmm. relationships aren't perfect. And so this, <laughs> This work is not about being a perfect parent. Um, it's about being good enough, uh, having good enough parenting, good enough uh, teams. And what I mean by that is that when there are ruptures, when there are conflicts, when there's things that go wrong um, and we hurt each other, we hurt one another, we say things we don't mean to say or we do things we don't mean to do, that we have that repair, that how are we able to come back together how are we able to forgive one another? How are we able to move on trusting the positive intentionality, trusting your calling, trusting the goodness in each of us? Um, and so even in early childhood relationships, we see that 
children that have experienced incredible adversities, um, if they have caregivers that are able to repair, then they create more resilience. Mm. So if we have teams that are able to, despite adversities, despite challenges, if we're able to then work together and repair our differences, um, then we can build resilience. So, so we're able to come together in forgiveness um, and be good enough and trust that that's good enough. Amen. Well, Tracy, I think this is probably a good place for us to push pause and come back to this thought of resilience and how it plays out in these co-regulation relationships. Um, I will just say from a personal standpoint, my favorite thing that I heard today had to do with um, the health of our relationships being even more predictive of our well-being than how we maybe started off. And um that just gives hope and encouragement that we all, like you said, our brains are malleable. Our, mm -hmm. our situations are malleable. There's transformation that happens. And so thank you for bringing this good word to us today. It has been so good to have you on this first episode of the Fellowship Podcast. We look forward to episode number two coming soon. Mm -hmm.